Welcome to the Adventure Deficit Podcast. We're here to promote lifelong learning through the context of adventure. Through our one-on-one interviews, we capture in-depth stories across a variety of subjects, emphasizing a new life lesson in every episode. We're on a mission to entertain, educate, and inspire you to embrace new challenges, reflect, push through fears, and get out there in search of your own adventures. We passionately pursue good story, and we'll run, climb, wade, ride, hunt, ski, or paddle our way into new ones, all in search of continual growth. We call it taking our medicine, and we invite you to join us for today's dose. Today we've got Mark Kenyon, founder of Wired to Hunt, uh, and recently an additional member to the Meat Eater crew. Uh, if you're not familiar with either of those, you can check them out online. Uh, I will post them in the show notes, but it's a real pleasure to sit and chat with, uh, with Mark today. Mark's going to share with us a little bit about his background, and then he's going to dive into an adventure story, and uh, hopefully we can pull out a life lesson or two. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to to chat about both some of my experiences in the outdoor world and and uh, some of my adventures. But uh, as you just mentioned there, I think it's I think it's a cool idea that we're going to kind of break things down and, and look for those left those life lessons because that's a lot of what I like to do too with all the things I do outside, whether it's hunting or fishing or backpacking or kayaking um when you go out to these wild places i feel like it it represents such an opportunity to to learn about yourself to learn about life to i don't know to just to just grow um that's one of my very favorite things about these these outdoor experiences so i always get a kick out of taking time to to reflect on these things and see what we can pull out totally well again we really appreciate you carving out some time let's uh let's dig in Mark, tell us a little bit about your growing up story. Where were you born? So I was born in Dearborn, Michigan, just kind of outside Detroit. And then uh, a handful of years later, I think I was six or seven, we moved over to the west side of the state into a city called Grand Rapids. And that's where I, that's basically where I grew up. And uh, yeah, grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan and got involved with the outdoors pretty early on. I don't know if you want me to jump into that yet, but. Absolutely. So Grand Rapids, I didn't even realize that, by the way. I thought you had uh, had played out all your formative years on the east side of the state, but that's fantastic because Grand Rapids is also my hometown, so we're going to find some common ground here. Yeah, yeah. I uh, specifically was there sort of in like the Walker area and then Granville. Um, so that was my neck of the woods from about age seven to, you know, after I left for college. Fantastic. <clears throat> okay, so uh, first, first and foremost, years zero to seven were uh, were spent in Dearborn. Um, anything that stands out as far as shaping you uh, during those years? You know, at that that time frame, I think was like the nadir of uh, my outdoor life and my parents because my dad was working at Ford World Headquarters and he had grown up on the west side of the state and he grew up spending a lot of time in the outdoors up in the northwest part of Michigan. Um, but when he moved to Detroit for work and, you know, I was born there, we were kind of stuck in the city, didn't do a lot of things that I know that my parents loved. And so for a long time, uh, my parents were looking for a way to get back to the west side of the state closer to the outdoor pursuits they enjoyed. So finally, when that opportunity arrived, 
we got to make that move. And that's really when things opened up for me. Um, you know, in those really early years, I did still have some great outdoor experiences, um, traveling up to our family cabin. Uh, my grandpa had bought a cabin in the eighties up in the Northwest, uh, portion of the, of the lower peninsula, little cabin on 40 acres. So from, I think the age I was probably, probably two or three, as soon as I was walking, I was going up to our camp and hanging out with the guys during deer hunting season. And um, so those early years, what I remember was just being at the cabin, just just this feeling of being in this big, wild, amazing place and being around all the guys who I looked up to so much um, and just being kind of in awe of the animals when we were fortunate and when someone in the camp was fortunate enough to, to get a deer, just being in awe by this creature and in awe of like these adventures that my dad and grandpa and uncles and their friends were doing. Um, but that was kind of the extent of what was going on there. We took, you know, little camping trips around Michigan in the area um, and lots of fishing, you know, basic little kid fishing, that kind of thing. Um, but it wasn't until I got a little older that we started to, to kind of go into some bigger, wilder places. Cool. What strikes me early on is that you were exposed to some rich, uh, some some rich platforms by which to grow on. One being family, the other being the outdoor heritage. Uh, it sounds like you were you were raised uh, by a family of sports people, sportsmen. Yeah, it, definitely true. Uh, of all the things that my family were involved in, the outdoors was always that that primary passion point. Um, my I think that started with my grandpa, my dad's dad was really into hunting and fishing and that then passed down to his two sons which was then passed down to me um and so my family early on you know we, we didn't take vacations to disney world we didn't take vacations to new york city we didn't take vacations to the caribbean we were going camping somewhere or i was going up to hunt and camp or we were going fishing um we grew up to the cabin. That was basically what my life was um, at an early age. And then that pretty much just continued on into now. <laughs> but I loved it. I absolutely loved everything about the outdoors. You know, when we did move to the west side of the state, where, where our house was built, there was a lot of open lots. Still was relatively undeveloped. So as a 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old, I had basically what felt like this vast open area to, to run around and explore with me and my next-door neighbor. And we just spent every day of the summer, every day after school, catching frogs and turtles and snakes and climbing trees and building forts and exploring what felt like this vast, uh, unpeopled wilderness at the time. <laughs> um, and that was that was just my life. It was, it was anything I could do outside, I was doing it. And... Um, so that was very formative for me. And then eventually we started taking a few vacations out west, which then were like landmark moments in my life. I think the first one I was maybe right around that seven-year-old uh, time period. And then again, when I think I was like 10, that first trip we went out to Washington to uh, Mount Rainier National Park and Olympic National Park. And then that second trip I went to Glacier National Park in Montana. And those just stuck with me for the rest of my young adult life just remembering being in those mountains and those scenes and being in this huge you know just a totally different scale from what i grew up on this was just this huge wild place and these big animals and that kind of instilled this fascination in with me to someday get back to those places um but but for most of my young adult life you know i, I stuck pretty local um michigan area hunting fishing camping hiking just kind of locally um, up through college, that was kind of what I did. 
early on, grandpa, dad, and family helped shape your passion for, uh, for the outdoors. Um, a little bit later, kind of during pre-elementary and elementary years when you had already transitioned over to the west side of the state, uh, you gained exposure to, uh, to some of the grandeur of the West. Was that pretty much uh, the, the mecca of the young Mark Kenyon's uh, dreams when compared scale-wise to the, the woodlot of your youth? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was, I was still so young when we went on those trips, but it stuck with me. Like, I always looked back on that. I had this, like, vision in my mind the rest of my life about how amazing it was there and how badly I wanted to go back. Um, and I always had this, this urge, this craving for big wild places and like epic adventures in these landscapes had always been fascinated with, you know, like a lot of young kids was fascinated with the stories of the explorers and Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and Lewis and Clark and wanting to be a mountain man and, you know, anything adventure wise in nature, I was just, you know, so fascinated by. So, so those trips and those early memories stuck with me. Um, but you know, through junior high and high school, I never went back to those places. My family didn't end up going back to those spots. We, um, like I said, spent a lot of time locally. And then also um, my mom's side of the family grew up in upstate New York. And so they had a little cabin, a little cottage on a lake in the Adirondacks, um, which is a, a pretty wild place there for the Northeast. So we ended up spending a lot of our vacations then throughout you know, junior high, high school, going to the Adirondacks, climbing mountains out there, hiking canoeing, doing a lot of that kind of stuff. So that was pretty cool. That was pretty wild. Not quite in the same scale as the West, but still um, great experiences. But I still had this slight intimidation factor, you know, about going off on like a big adventure on my own. Um, I'd always wanted to go backpacking. I always wanted to do that kind of stuff, but my, that was something my family never did. So I never really had that like comfort or, or knowledge base to go do something like that. But I always, in my head, was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I remember um, I used to work at a store called Gander Mountain, and um, I was a fishing associate. So my job was basically just helping people figure out, you know, what kind of gear they needed for fishing trips or point them in the right direction for this technique or that tactic or this trip or whatever. Um, but I remember I'd always go through the camping section and, like, stare at the backpacking tents. And one day, one came up for sale, and it was probably on sale for 80 bucks. So, I mean, it wasn't expensive at all, but at the time it seemed like a huge purchase. And I stood there and like the whole day I sat like, should I buy this tent? Should I not buy this tent? I've never gone backpacking, but I want to go backpacking. Is this a bad thing to spend money on? I remember calling my dad and like laying out, here's the pros for buying this tent. Here's the cons. Here's why I think it's a good idea. Here's why I think it'll enable me to maybe do this adventure I want to do. You know, looking back on it, it seems so silly. Um, but I bought that tent. And with the goal that, you know, by having this tent, this will, you know, it'll make it easier for me to finally go on that backpacking trip I want to do. But then still, you know, other things in life came up and I never ended up going on that big grand adventure. Um, and then, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, Drew. So you can tell me to shut up if you want. No, but. man, you're doing great. And actually, you know what? Typically we try and we try to adhere to some, some format that uh, allows kind of our guests to just streamline their, their growing up years. But this is a, a very special case. You grew up in the Walker Granville area. A woodlot was your was your stomping grounds, and you and a neighbor kid used to go do Huck Finn and uh, Mark Twain style adventures. Um, mm -hmm. So far, we're neck and neck with within ten miles. I was doing the exact same thing. Uh, that <laughs> is just kind of cracking me up. That's funny. The Gander Mountain piece. That's where I used to shop. I'm sure. At some point, I have met you. Yeah, you probably were in there with me. <laughs> um, yeah, the, just as far as, um, you know, 
breeding early on uh, a passion for the outdoors in multiple different disciplines, West Michigan has been an awesome, awesome um, canvas for that. And uh, it's allowed me to do a little bit of trails, a little bit of paddling, a little bit of backpacking. Um, and there are epic mini adventures to be had in the West Michigan area. And I think that's kind of where it, it almost sounds like we kind of were both forged uh, by those little mini adventures that we could kind of take in lower doses. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a great place to to be able to dabble in a lot of those experiences. There's the, such a diversity of opportunities in that area. And, um, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of people that are involved in the outdoor recreation world now from a career standpoint. They got their start in West Michigan. I mean, everything from, you know, writers like a Steve Rinella, um, other guys, you know, Jim Harrison grew up in Michigan, Tom McGuane. I mean, a lot of guys that spent time in West Michigan or Northern Michigan ended up making a big impact on the world. Mm -hmm. um, so there must be something in the water there that breeds uh, some interesting folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, must be. Okay, so uh, transition back kind of toward toward your early trajectory toward uh, young adulthood. So young, uh, young Mark Kenyon at seven years old, I got to imagine you're doing elementary school uh, somewhere in the Granville Walker area. So what was that? Give us the details yeah. there. I went to a school called Kenowa Hills. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, went to Kenowa. And, you know, just kind of your basic growing up kind of deal. Um, you know, you you were at um, a backcountry hunters and anglers storytelling night mm -hmm. that I spoke at a few weeks ago. And I, I talked a little bit about, like, my elementary years and how that was a little bit of a struggle for me because I had – and I won't go into all the, the details too much here, but for a while when I was really young, I had ears that stuck way out. And I eventually had some some small surgery on it when I was seven or eight years old, nine years old, somewhere around there, that kind of made things look normal again. But because of that, it took a lot of heat, got teased a lot, um, ridiculed during those early years. So that definitely led to me kind of trying to find somewhere I could escape to. And this is another thing, not only did my family um, – you know, background leading me to the outdoors, but also I found in the outdoors this place where I could escape some of the, the social dynamics that were trouble for me young at a young age. And it, it was somewhere I could feel comfortable. It was somewhere I could feel good about myself. It was somewhere I could prove myself, build confidence. Mm. Um, so those outdoor experiences weren't just what me and my friends and family did, but it was also kind of that place where I was able to build an identity that I was proud of and I was excited about. Um, away from some of those things that you know were tougher for me. So, so that's another thing I think worth pointing out about those early years. Yeah, um, it was it was really, you know, in some ways, kind of saved me. You might say. Hmm. Man, that's thanks for sharing that. That's uh, that's a little slice of vulnerability that you know not everybody's always willing to divulge. But uh, man, those those type of of scenarios can add so much to us, and they can help us along in the long run. But and elementary and, and middle school years are some of the toughest, I believe. They definitely can be. Kids can be brutal. <laughs> mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, high school at Kenwell Hills as well. Yeah, high school Kenwell Hills. That's where I. That's where I did the whole thing, and through through that whole time period, you know, like I mentioned earlier, did a lot of hiking, camping. A lot of fishing um, and then hunting, of course, all through that. I've always been huge into deer hunting. Mm. And um, and then on the fishing side, during high school years, I got really into bass fishing. So I actually started like fishing bass tournaments, 
thought I wanted to be a professional bass fisherman for a while, so I got really hardcore into that. Um, so those are kind of the two things. I was fishing all spring and summer, and then during the fall, I, you know, early teenage years, I taught myself how to bow hunt. So I got really big into bow hunting back behind my parents' house. And, uh, you know, every, every day in school, I'd sit at the back of the class with like five different hunting magazines and just be reading hunting magazines while the teachers up front were droning on about whatever. <laughs> so, um, I definitely, you know, from, from the get go, I've been, I've been pretty well obsessed with hunting and the outdoors and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just continued over time. Wow. Cool. Um, did you play any sports or was it all outdoors? I played some sports, but never terribly well. Um, you know, I, I ran track. I played baseball, basketball. I played football early on. Played some tennis. Um, I was always good enough to make the team, but not good enough to start. Was kind of where I, I fell on the spectrum of, of athletic abilities. Um, so that was probably again why I felt uh, why I was drawn to my outdoor pursuits because that was somewhere where I felt like I was really good. I was really confident, um, and I was kind of. I, I, I think one thing with me is that. I'm very goal oriented. I'm very achievement oriented. Um, I, I like to be the best at stuff, hmm. you know, from an early age. So I did, I did very well in school. I was very proud of that. Um, I, I was great at certain things, but in sports, I love sports, but when I wasn't starting, when I wasn't, you know, doing well, that was, that was tough for me to handle. So, um, so while I always would, you know, important thing to me, what I learned from my dad was just pushing through tough things. So I, you know, I never quit the team. I kept pushing, but I, it was, it was, it was less fun for me while in the outdoors when I was doing those singular pursuits, where it was just me versus myself, pushing myself to get better, pushing myself to learn more, pushing myself to take on new challenges. That was something um, that really appealed to me. Um, so that's probably part of the reason why I continue to go further and further into the wormhole of, of hunting, fishing, all these different things. Yeah. I, I remember jumping, I went to unity Christian. We played you guys, um, in a lot of different sports. I think I graduated a little bit before you did. I was in Oh two. Um, when did you graduate Mark? Oh five. Okay. So yeah, it's three years ahead of you, but, um, I can remember ducking out of soccer practice, literally taking, um, a dry shower with scent wipes, jumping into my Jeep Wrangler and driving off to my grandfather's back 40 which what probably wasn't all that far from you. It was in Marne. Yeah, um, yeah, we spent a lot of time in Marne. Some of those river bottoms, kind of over by the Mott Orchard. Yeah, that's funny. That's uh, a lot of the kids I went to school with were in that neck of the woods. Yeah, so I hunted the wood plot um, off of Twenty Fourth and Buchanan, and I would literally spend every every hour that I wasn't on the soccer turf out there, um, and it, <laughs> I didn't achieve a whole lot of success in in that environment but i was totally hooked i loved it same thing yeah yeah but yeah. uh i think that was probably another uh another way for me to learn on, on kind of my own terms um the different variety of trees the different variety of nuts the different variety of, of flora and fauna that existed in that that back 40 which was quite extensive when i actually break it down there was i mean there was quite a bit of diversity in that in that little chunk he managed it really well but um it's cool yeah I think there's there's just a lot of congruence early on in, in kind of both of the the Kenyon and DeVries story that I would love to yeah. explore more later. Um, but that's all world. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, okay, so you graduated in '05. Um, did you have big uh, big goals on the horizon? What did what did a 19 year old Mark Kenyon uh, with the world at his fingertips look like? Man, the 19 year old Mark Kenyon with the world at his fingertips was a little bit of an idiot. 
Um, he, at that point, at that point in my life, I got this big wild idea that I wanted to be some fancy schmancy businessman. Um, I, you know, I'd always been interested in business and marketing and advertising and psychology and and why people do what they do and, um, just higher learning and all that kind of stuff. So I went into college going for a business degree. Um, so got really wrapped up into all that stuff you know, everything that college life entails, the social stuff. Um, so I had a great college experience. I went to Michigan State University, had an amazing time, learned a lot, made a lot of great friends and relationships, um, pursued that career path, uh, had some great internships in the business world. One took me to New York City where I worked for a digital marketing agency, which which really set me up um, as far as some of the skills that I used post-graduation, okay. um, but but probably the most impactful thing during my college years uh, related to this topic of the outdoors and outdoor adventure was something that happened my senior year. Um, I had taken a lot of AP courses in high school, so I came into college with credits already. So by the time I graduated, by that last semester or even almost the last year, I had, I had most everything done that I needed to have done. So I had a whole bunch of electives that I could just go and use. I didn't need to take any like the really serious courses. So that last semester, I had some credits to burn and I was digging through just the random electives and I saw outdoor preparedness 101. Like outdoor preparedness, like that sounds right up my alley. So I signed up for this class not really knowing what to expect. And little did I know that this would be like one of the most influential decisions of my entire life. Like honestly, taking this class changed my life. Wow. So I show up at this class not knowing what to expect, just, you know, knowing I love the outdoors and all that, but thinking this is probably going to be some bozo telling you how to, you know, start a fire with two sticks or something. I wasn't really expecting something too profound for a college course um, related to the outdoors, but it's going to give a shot. So I show up and my instructor standing at the front and I basically imagine like a real life American version of Bear Grylls. That was who my teacher was. He had a... (laughs) But he had a big burly beard. He was wearing hiking boots and like mountain khakis and a flannel shirt. And he just looked like he knew what he was talking about. And right out the gate, um, I was impressed. I basically, within the first hour of class, I decided, like, yeah, I want to grow up to be this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he started talking through as he introduced kind of what the plan for the class was. Um, he talked through his background. And I'll probably mess up the specifics here, but if remember if I remember right, he had done research in Antarctica. He had studied grizzly bears in Alaska. He was on a wolf project in Montana. He studied uh, some kind of apes in the Amazon. Um, he'd been all over the world on these incredible adventures. He was had been working as a biologist, a field biologist, doing all sorts of really really interesting studies, and just traveling to all corners of the world climbing mountains, going on amazing backpacking trips, float trips, just some epic stuff. And so throughout the course of this semester, basically he was teaching us everything we needed to know to plan an expedition, to execute an outdoor, you know, backpacking or floating or whatever kind of outdoor expedition, backpacking trip, how to survive tough situations, how to deal with adversity, how to manage emergency situations, everything from dealing with broken legs to, you know, how to handle being lost to how to, you know, deal with bears in the backcountry to how to hang a bear bag to all the things you need to bring or prepare before going on a two week backpacking trip, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we, we did, we covered everything. We read some really fascinating books related to survival stories or 
expedition planning. Um, and the, the whole point of this is that coming out of that class, I had this brand new set of foundational knowledge that mm. I needed to take all those dreams I had as a young kid, you know, after those Western trips where I wanted to do this stuff, but my family wasn't going back and doing those types of trips. I wasn't going on big backpacking trips or huge floats or expeditions, but I always wanted to do that. Just didn't have the confidence or the experience or the knowledge or anyone to do it with. Well, after this class, now all of a sudden I'd learned everything I needed to know and I had this newfound confidence. Um, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to start doing this stuff. So after that class, I dusted off that old, backpacking tent I'd bought four or five years ago and decided, all right, now I'm, I feel like I can finally do this stuff. So that started a whole new kind of chapter in my life. Um, post-graduation started, started going out West on some of these big adventures. And, um, that's a whole other story. Wow. Cool. So that gave you the chops that gave you the language to actually execute some of these, uh, to put into practice some of these longings that had been part of your, your desire since, childhood yeah exactly so cool what uh what was that curriculum based on did you do a lot of knolls or wilderness first responder type stuff yeah yeah so like our, our basic textbook was the knolls um i can't remember the specific title but the knolls guide to expedition planning or outdoor you know adventures or something on those lines um so yeah it covered all the basics of navigation and planning and expedition leadership and dealing with emergency situations and some basic outdoor first responder type stuff. And, um, that was the main book. And then we read a handful of like survival stories and then we break, you know, break down how they dealt with the situation, what mistakes they made that led to the issue, how they were able to get out of it, different stuff like that. We read a really interesting book by a guy named Luis Gonzalez. Yes. That, uh, I think it's called, I don't know, forget what it's called. Extreme um, survival. Yes, or Deep Survival. Deep, Deep survival, survival, yes. Yeah, and so that was a fascinating book. Um, we watched different films, different documentaries about things, and then, you know, uh, Bob was our teacher's name. We then, he would break all these things down, help us understand everything that had happened before and after and learn from these different, uh, different anecdotes. And, and he had so many great stories throughout the thing, too. I mean, it was just fascinating. It was the one class I went to every week that I was just like pumped to go to. Couldn't wait. And um, I ended up being, I, I don't know if I was that annoying student or the student he liked, but I was always asking questions and afterwards we'd be talking to him. Um, and he ended up being really helpful, you know, said to shoot him emails and stuff. So I would reach out and he'd give me recommendations on trails or places to check out um, in those early, early months and years after graduation. And uh, so that was a pretty cool, cool, pretty cool thing. Awesome. Cool. Um, so you uh, you did all four years at state. You graduated with a business degree, and uh, during that time, it sounds like somebody somebody actually hooked in. Somebody got their uh, their due claws into the the spirit of uh, of of kind of the young adult version of you, and uh, gave you some some tools to actually go explore with. Um, where'd you go? What'd you do? Yeah. So. The first, so first, we went on our first backpacking trip in northern Michigan. This was my girlfriend and I at the time um, did a backpacking trip on the Manistee River uh, Trail in the North Country Trail there, up around kind of like Mesick, Michigan. Okay. Um, that was our first trip. That was really cool. Then we did one other small trip in Michigan, and then at the end of the summer, we backpacked Pictured Rocks, um, which I just uh, uh, kind of coincidentally did again this past weekend. Um, so we did three trips in Michigan. 
And then I had gotten a full-time job after school that was going to be starting me out in California. I was moving out to Mountain View, California um, in September. So my girlfriend and I decided, you know, now that we're all about this backpacking thing, we really wanted to go out west. I hadn't been since I was like 10 years old. She'd never been. So we decided I had to move out west. Why don't we take three weeks and road trip across the country and hike and camp and backpack our way from Michigan to California? So we spent three weeks in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, Yellowstone National Park, and Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. And um, that was just a, just an unbelievable trip that uh, you know really kind of set the wheel spinning. And, and ever since then, I've been going back out west and doing bigger and wilder adventures every year more and more and more. But that was that, was that kind of... Uh, catalyst for a lot of things it was it was just a really special trip sure that's cool um when you say you transitioned from your internship in nyc as a digital marketing uh account manager to mountain view california do you care to shine a little bit of uh, limelight as as to what entities you had attached yourself to at that time yeah, so I had done that digital marketing internship, and then that during my senior year of college, I got accepted for a position with Google. So once I graduated that that next fall, they sent me out to headquarters, which was in Mountain View, California, and I worked there at headquarters for four months or five months or something like that, and then uh, then moved back to an office in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked for four years, um, and I was doing digital marketing online marketing strategy type stuff there. So that was my day job. Um, and I guess it's worth noting too, during the same time period, this is also when I started Wired to Hunt. Um, I actually started it when I was there in New York on that internship. My job there for that internship was working with bloggers and helping promote products that my clients, you know, the, the clients of this agency I was working with, that they wanted to get promoted. So, you know, I'd be sending free Reeboks to a food or to a shoe bloggers, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching this and I'm seeing all these different websites that are popping up and how these bloggers are making a living and they're doing this cool stuff. And at the time I was just going nuts because I'm stuck in the city. I couldn't get out and doing, doing the things I love. I couldn't fish. I couldn't be prepping for hunting season. I couldn't be hiking around. I was just in this concrete jungle and, and just going crazy. So I got this idea that why don't I start a blog? Why don't I start a website about deer hunting? And you know that that would kind of help me scratch my deer hunting itch. I get to write about and talk about the stuff I love, even though I couldn't get out and do it. So just on a whim, I was like, I'm doing it. So I started this website, and it was a blast. I really enjoyed learning how to do all that stuff and, and using my skill set that I've been developing from a business standpoint and a marketing standpoint and social media standpoint to start this thing up. And I continued that kind of off and on throughout that senior year of college and then like I said graduated did all that stuff during the summer that we just talked about then that fall now I'm working for Google I'm at their headquarters just outside of San Francisco it's during hunting season and now I can't hunt again I can't get outside I can't do the stuff I love and again I'm going crazy stir crazy just just dying and so I turned back to wired to hunt started spending more time on wired to hunt again to help scratch that itch to help deal with my um Oh, what's the word? Um, Angst. Blanking out. Uh, yeah, just just needed to get out and doing stuff, but I couldn't. So while this is all happening, though, I happened to pick up a book at um, at Barnes Noble there in Mountain View called Crush It. 
and this book Crush It was all about turning your passion into a career. And I read that book and I finished that book and I, I closed it, sat down my table and said, that's what I'm going to do. And from that point on, I was just so inspired to try to take my love for the outdoors and try to find some way to make that my career. Because I realized right out the gate, within a couple of weeks of starting at Google, like, this is a great place to work. I appreciated it. I knew it was going to be a great experience, but it was not how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. Um, so right away, I knew I needed to do something different. So I decided, all right, I'm going to take this wired to hunt thing and someday I'm going to find a way to you know, build this thing into a business that I can support myself on. And, um, that set me on a trajectory that has, um, you know, again, completely changed my life and has led me to where I am now too. So, so two things that happened there within that, you know, that, that year, that spring semester of college was the outdoor adventure class that set me on my path as far as outdoor experiences. And then, you know, six months later, um, this realization from a business standpoint that I wanted to have my career revolve around outdoors, outdoor adventures as well. Um, those two things really, really reset the trajectory. Hmm. Wow, man, that is, that's fascinating. Um, to have, how old were you when you were at Google? 20, 20, yeah, 21 when I started, um, until I was 25 or something like that. Yeah. So in, in the mind's eye of most, I would say, uh, well-educated young men in, in your position at that moment, um, I would dare say most folks would, would hang their hat there, say, I've arrived, done. Yeah, I guess I, I, I definitely was very appreciative and thankful for the opportunity I had, no doubt about that. But, um, but I knew there was more out there. I knew there was something that could be more fulfilling, yeah. and, um, and I wanted to chase that. Yeah. Well, I'm certain I'm certainly glad that you did because I've been exposed to some of your writings. I've been exposed to uh, some of uh, some of your podcasts with uh, both Wired to Hunt and more recently with the Meat Eater Crew. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to just kind of learning through some of your excerpts and and trying to figure out how to navigate this space as well. Because I think there's uh, yeah, I just think there's so much that uh, the outdoor industry as a whole recreation can teach people and i think we're circling back to what you were getting at uh kind of in our opening segment but um through challenging yourself through through external variables that you can't control which uh come quite often in natural settings uh you expose yourself to to areas of your character that uh that you didn't know were underdeveloped or didn't even know were there and uh, you get a chance to work work on yourself in ways that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and I think it's very unique to the outdoor outdoor world. And uh, yeah, I, I would dare say that there's probably more learning that can take place there uh, right now than, uh, or not more, but just as much than any, any uh, area of academia, so. Mm, yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah. Cool, awesome. Well, thanks for sharing some of that. Um, Wired to Hunt has been going going well for you it's been growing um and i i would love to have you you know tell us just a couple of things as to what's uh, going on right now with just kind of the the career um before we jump into your adventure story yeah so the the really cliff notes version of this is um you know as i mentioned i started this website wired to hunt which was going to be the the deer hunting blog for the next generation was my vision for it it's grown from that over the last decade to um to now being a website a you know video series on youtube and a podcast 
mostly focused on deer hunting, white-tailed deer hunting. Um, and that's everything from strategies to stories to news to things related to habitat and conservation and the environment. Um, so that's been like the core um, focus of the website. My own personal you know, interests, though, of course, are above and beyond just deer hunting. So I've begun to do more and more um, things related to the outdoors, public lands, hunting, fishing, other outdoor adventures. So more of my writings are, have been going that direction. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, Wired Hunt has been growing. I've been very fortunate to build what's what's now the largest deer hunting podcast out there um, and have been able to write for most of the different major hunting publications like Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, and so on. Um, so I've been very blessed to have those, those opportunities. And um, just recently, um, we are now going to be kind of working on a brand new business adventure with Steve Ranella from Meat Eater. We're going to be combining what I'm doing with Wired Hunt with what he's doing over at Meat Eater and a few other folks in building uh, building a new media company that hopefully will allow us to, to, to kind of share our perspectives on hunting and fishing in the outdoors um, to, uh, to an even larger audience and in new ways, which hopefully can, can make a real positive impact for the future of our outdoor pursuits. And, uh, that's something I'm really excited about moving forward. So, uh, lots of change happening this year, but I think it's going to lead to some, some exciting opportunities. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for sharing. Uh, okay. Now that we're caught up with, uh, with Mark Kenyon's background, uh, he has agreed to share with us, uh, from his quiver of adventures, uh, one specific adventure by which he uh, extracted a life lesson. Um, Mark, what are you going to share with us today? And uh, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to turn it over to you to, uh, to kind of air it all out. So, yeah, well, I got to apologize to you, Drew, specifically, because you already heard this story, um, part of it at least, but I want to share this with the rest of your audience because when I look back on my recent experiences, this has definitely been one of the most important lessons for me, definitely moving forward. Um, and it was something that I, I had to confront. Um, and so so I told part of this story at this uh, BHA storytelling night that you were at a few weeks ago. Yes. Um, so I'll regale you with a, a slightly more detailed version of that. So, you know, since that point we left off with my own personal story, when I started backpacking, when I took that first trip out west – over the next 10 years have just continued that ramping up more and more and more and more and more spending as much time as I can doing these things all the way to the point where over the last three or four years, um, my wife and I have been living two or three or four months out West, whether in a rented cabin, um, or last year we bought an old camper and renovated it and just lived in campgrounds for four months. Um, so that's kind of how our life's been moving and spending all that time out there, hiking and hunting and fishing and scouting and backpacking and kayaking and rafting and anything we could do in the outdoors, we were doing it, just enjoying and appreciating and experiencing our public lands and wild places. Um, so that has become, it's become what my life revolves around really. Um, and I also have had this kind of insatiable desire for adventure and for personal challenge, always trying to take things to the next level. Um, so because of that, we've done some really cool trips. My wife and I, who was my girlfriend at that time on that first road trip, we're now married. Um, you know, we've, we've done some incredible things together. It's been amazing. But this, um, this insatiable 
unquenchable thirst I have for quote-unquote epic adventure has led to some challenges for my wife and I too because we both have different ideas of what an acceptable level of risk is, where to draw that line, um, and I think that's something that anyone that's that's spending time in the outdoors, especially you know in bigger, wilder places, when you're taking off on some kind of outdoor expedition or adventure, there's always going to be this line that you need to walk when it comes to adventure and risk tolerance and how far is too far versus how far because sometimes you do need to push yourself past a comfort point um, if you want to achieve things you do need to push yourself beyond what you thought was possible you need to you know I think lots of times by doing that you can a lot of that personal growth you talk about that happens when you push yourself beyond what you thought was within your abilities so I'm always for trying to do this kind of these kinds of trips that are going to take us above and beyond what we thought we could do or do take on scary things I love taking on things that kind of scare me totally. facing them on head forward and seeing what it's like on the other side totally um, and can I just jump in real quick yeah so what Mark is getting at is uh, is there's there's actually in the in the outdoor recreation world a, a term for that it's called acceptable risk and it's that sweet spot where you find the balance of what you're willing to to expose yourself to in both inherent slash environmental risks, and then what your psyche, what your what your makeup will allow you to to enjoy. And when you find that balance where you are pressing the edge of what your body will allow you to do, what your mind will allow you to overcome, and you're pairing it well with those external variables. Um, there, there's a lot of people who find that that space to be incredibly um, rich as far as learning takes place. It's flow. Definitely, definitely. Sorry to sidetrack you. Go ahead. No problem. No problem. But uh, but yeah. So this this constant balancing act of figuring out where that line is, um, is something that, um, I personally have enjoyed pushing and like trying to discover, but at the same time it has caused some, I don't know if it's friction, but it's just caused occasional bumps in the road for my wife and I, because we have different ideas of where that line should be drawn sometimes. And so that has caused, you know, that that's just led to some interesting situations over this past decade of our adventures. Um, in different places and sometimes I've been known to push things too far um, and and unfortunately has led to sometimes my wife paying the price um, a couple summers ago we took a backpacking trip in uh, on the west side of the Tetons and I want to go way up go over this big pass and um, camp in this alpine tarn and I was taking out two friends of mine who'd never gone on a backpacking trip before so I was thinking ah, I can I want to show them this amazing epic trip this great place um, but I wasn't I was so gung-ho and excited about it. I wasn't thinking about how challenging this would be for a first-time person. I wasn't thinking about the fact that it was relatively early in the season. There's still going to be a lot of snow. Um, and I, I knew these things, but I said, oh, we'll be fine. We've done this kind of thing before. Um, Josh and Kelly will be fine, blah, blah, blah. I, I tend to be – I think it's a, it's a good quality in most cases, but sometimes can be bad in that I am very optimistic. I look at everything glass half full. Um, but sometimes when I look at a situation in an outdoor adventure standpoint, that might lead to me glossing over potential risks that uh, might bite you in the butt. So while I, I'm always trying to be very prepared and I try to consider all the different possible risks on occasion, at least my wife would tell you that sometimes I take too rosy of a view of things. And um, so on this backpacking trip in particular, you know, 
all those things I just mentioned were the case. It was it was harder than you know we had expected. There was more snow than we expected. The rivers were blown out with runoff, so a lot of higher water levels. There were a lot of creek and river crossings that we had to do. There were my wife kept saying, "I don't think this is a good idea. This is too rough." This, this what if someone falls in the river when we're crossing? And I'm saying, oh, it's fine. Just basic hop from rock to rock. We'll be careful. We'll do it the right way. It'll be fine. Um, and this led to, towards the end of the day, everyone's really tired because I pushed everyone maybe a little bit too far. And my wife ended up slipping off a rock when crossing a river, slamming her hip down the rock, falling in this icy stream up above. Like, we're in snow level. It's really cold. She's soaking wet. Has it hurt hip? Um, so things like that on occasion have happened to me. And I've, I've tried to learn from those experiences. And for the most part, I have. But I had an experience this past summer that took this and kind of flipped it on its head and really finally got me to kind of shake myself up and woke up to the fact that, number one, you always have to be evolving when it comes to understanding what the acceptable risk is. But then also that um, the level of acceptable risk and your goals and aspirations when it comes to adventures or trips or whatever it might be, those things need to change um, as your as your responsibilities in life change. So for me, mm. early on, when I just had a girlfriend or I had a wife, honestly, I was pretty selfish, just thinking about what I wanted to do, what kind of great adventure I wanted, the, the things that would make me happy. And, you know, I've tried to get better about taking my wife's thoughts and considerations into it, but honestly, sometimes I've failed at that. I've, I've fallen short. So that takes us to this past summer. Um, like I mentioned, we had rented, or sorry, we bought an old camper. We renovated it. We were living out west. We'd been in Utah and Idaho and Colorado, Wyoming, Montana. Um, had an amazing summer. All sorts of crazy things that happened. Lots of debacles along the way. But um, we found out in the middle of the summer that my wife was pregnant. And... This was amazing. This was very exciting. It was also, of course, life-changing. Um, and it goes back to, again, what I've been talking about here, how great these outdoor adventures had been for me, these experiences, and this passion I had developed. But uh, but also, it had developed a little bit of a, a selfishness in me that was so focused on these things that I wanted to achieve that when we found out we were pregnant, and even in the years ahead of this, I had always been apprehensive about having kids. I knew I wanted to someday, but I was like, well, when we have that kid, we're not going to be able to go do these things anymore. We're not going to be able to go take these great trips. We're not going to be able to go climb mountains and raft down rivers and take off for 20 days at a time and go in the backcountry or whatever it might be. Um, so I was always selfishly thinking about how having a child would just impact me and like my personal goals. So now we found out we're pregnant. And again, as exciting as that was, one of the first things I thought of was, how's this going to mess up our great summer adventure? Like we were spending four months going all over the place. This is going to be such an amazing experience. How's a kid or how's a being pregnant going to screw that up? And so we went and visited the doctor and talked about this. And, and she basically said, you know, in general, it'll be fine. You just need to listen to your wife's body, you know, make sure you're paying attention to how she's feeling. Um, don't ignore signs that there might be something going wrong. Don't push it too far. And then be careful about high elevation. Um, don't, I think if I remember right, she'd said, don't spend too much time over 8,000 feet. Don't be spending the night over 8,000 feet too often. Yeah, you gotta be careful. I think there was like some blood pressure stuff, different things along those lines where issues could pop up when it comes to that. So I thought, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great. We'll be able to do the stuff we want to do in general. It'll be okay. 
So we take off, uh, continue on our adventure, and yeah, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was probably sometime in late July or early August, and we're in Wyoming, and we're going to go on a hike in uh, the Shoshone National Forest, which is just southeast of Yellowstone National Park. And we went on this hike up past this area, and there's a lake called Brooks Lake. It is just a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, huge lake, these like fins of rock, like the mountains here are very, um, almost like imagine like the spine on a stegosaurus or mm-hmm. like a, a shark's fin, but elongated. These like very sheer walls, striated with snow coming down the side. Or there was another section that kind of looked like the Chinese wall. Um, there's a section in the Bob Marshall wilderness called the Chinese wall kind of stuff that looked like that. Um, so just absolutely gorgeous scenery, great hike, wildflowers everywhere. We, we hiked past the lake, hiked up this river Valley, went up into these Hills, found a couple lakes tucked in there, did some fly fishing, had lunch, relaxed. We had our dogs with us, had a really great evening. Uh, but we were above that 8,000 feet of elevation we were spending that full day up there, but I told Kylie, it'll be fine. You know, that was just some guidance. We don't need to worry too much. Um, no big deal. So we had a great day hiking. We come back, and our camper was way down at Grand Teton National Park at lower elevation. Um, this area that we were at was way up on top of this mountain pass that was, again, like I said, higher than that 8,000 feet of elevation. So the, the original plan was to drive back down to lower elevation and stay at our camper that night. But as we're driving out of this spot we'd hiked, we're passing this national forest section, a little pull off on the dirt road. And it was just absolutely beautiful. And I thought, man, why don't we just pull the, pull the truck in here and just stay here overnight? We've got everything we need to cook dinner. We've got our sleeping bags. We can sleep in the back of the truck. It'll be fine. Let's just do that. I'm not worried about the elevation. It's just one night. No big deal. So I convinced my wife that this would be all right. We set up camp, have a great dinner, have a great night. We're settling in for the evening, laying in the sleeping bags in the back of the truck and Kylie mentioned to me she's she's getting a really bad headache. And I kind of just thought, oh, that's a bummer. You know, pop a Tylenol or something or whatever you want to do. Drink some water. It'll be fine. Didn't think too much of it. And maybe a half hour later, now it's dark. We're just about to fall asleep. And she kind of rolls over. She says, Mark, I'm feeling, like, really lightheaded. Um, this is weird. And now I'm starting to think, okay, this is, this is a little bit – this is a little bit different. So my mind starts kind of thinking, like, is there something going on here? And then a few minutes later, she, she kind of has a scared look in her eyes now, and she looks over me, and she says, Mark, I can't, I, I can't breathe. She was having a hard time breathing. So now all of a sudden, this flip switch, where all of a sudden we realized something was happening here, this was something serious, and it, it became very scary. So I rushed my wife out of the back of the truck, into the front seat of the truck. I realized we need to get off this mountain now. We need to get, get down to lower elevation. Um, so we pack, I packed up camp as fast as I could. I've never moved so fast. Hop in the truck and just start peeling out, drive out to the highway, start barreling down the mountain. And I'm driving, pedal to the metal. I look over at my wife now, and, and now her eyes um, are kind of glazed over. She has this just, just, I don't know how to describe this look she had, but but she wasn't there. It didn't feel like she was present in her eyes. Mm. Um and that was really scary to see. I'm thinking something's going wrong here. This is even worse than I thought. So I'm driving even faster, the pedal down even harder, gripping the steering wheel as tight as I possibly can, just praying that a deer or an elk or something doesn't run across the road because I'm barreling down this mountain pass road at 70, 80 miles an hour, whatever it was. I look back over at her again, and, and now I see that she can't even keep her eyes open. And she's just taking these really shallow little breaths and kind of raspy. 
her head's leaned against the window, and I, I and now I'm worried: is she gonna pass out? Is like what's happening? I have no idea what's going on. I have no idea what to do. I was so so scared. I mean, I've never been more afraid, um, worried in my entire life that some stupid decision of mine to to want to do this great hike, to want to push the limits and what was okay, to try to have this you know this epic adventure that I'm always trying to push for. I had done this and selfishly been so focused on my own goals and my own aspirations that I ignored the potential risks to my wife, the potential risk to my, you know, still unborn child. Could that stupid selfishness now, you know, lead to something really horrific happening? Um, I just, I just remember being just so terrified. Um, and there was nothing I could do except for drive. And so I just was praying and, 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 just trying to talk to her, just trying to keep her awake, just trying to keep her, take deep breaths, take deep breathing, keep breathing, keep your eyes open. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And, and we, we, we barreled down that mountain, eventually got back down to the lower elevation. And as we're going, I'm trying to decide, do I need to go right to a hospital? Do I just need to go to the camper? I mean, what is the situation? I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. Um, but we got back down and, got to lower elevation and pull up to the camper and trying to assess the situation. And she's, she's opening her eyes now and, and she's able to talk to me and she's, she's, I just need to lay down. I just need to lay down. And so that's what we ended up doing. It's her breathing was kind of picking back up. Like I said, she was kind of becoming more awake and we laid her down and she fell asleep. And the next morning, you know, she was, she was feeling okay again. And, um, it seemed that we had avoided disaster, hmm. but that, that, that moment, that hour, half hour, whatever, however long it was driving down that mountain was, was probably the scariest moment in my life because, because it was, it was going to impact someone other than me. It was this, my wife's health, my baby. And this was just this like paradigm shift for me when I realized that my selfish goals and aspirations, I, they don't matter anymore. I can't be so focused on what I want, what I want to achieve. Um, not only do I have a wife, I need to, I need to be doing a better job of prioritizing, but now I have this new life, this baby, this child that is going to depend on me to make the right decisions to, to care about, to take care of. Um, and for the first time, I I really realized at that point that my whole life was, was different from now on. Hmm. I was not at the center of everything anymore. He, he had to be, he was, and um, that has changed things for me. That was uh, that was an epiphany. That was that that really tough, poignant, painful, scary moment that finally shook the sense into me that that I needed, um, and that now as a father of a of a four month old baby boy, um, it's it's something that I continue to think about every day. Wow. Wow, dude. So yeah, I had the pleasure of meeting Mark, his wife, and. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a happy ending to this. Um, his little baby boy, uh, Ethan, is it or Everett? Everett, yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, we all uh, we all had a chance to quick uh, catch up a little bit after Mark shared this story at BHA um, down at uh, the Filson, or I'm sorry, at the the Detroit Bus Company um, a few weeks back. But wow, what a scary scary moment! And I don't. I don't know if you can, um, yeah, I don't know if you can capture the magnitude of, of that fear, but it's, uh, you did a pretty darn good job. My palms are sweating, just feeling, 
um, the helplessness, the sense of helplessness that kind of came pouring in um, all at once when uh, when Kylie's head started to kind of slink back. I can only imagine not being able to go fast enough. Um, yeah. And and all of you know all of the things that are swimming through your head. None of them good. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But there's a silver lining here. Kylie's healthy, uh, and yeah, your uh, your baby boy is doing great. So awesome, yes. man. Very thankful. Everything everything worked out, and um, learned an important lesson there that I'll be continuing to to apply to future hunt or future trips and adventures. And um, you know, I think that's something that is as you alluded to earlier. It's something that all of us have to have to wade through, have to struggle with, try to figure out how to prioritize, how to, dis- how to make decisions when you're on these outdoor uh, adventures or expeditions, how to walk that line of, of risk versus pushing yourself, um, how to prioritize the right things. That's something that I know I am far from perfect at. I have a long ways to go, um, but it was an important lesson and a, an important kind of shaking and, and awakening for me that uh, is going to help me do a better job of that moving forward, especially now that I'll be bringing my son along with me for these trips. Um, that's going to be a whole new thing that I'm, that I'm so excited about and that I'm taking very seriously that new responsibility. And um, I can't wait to, to introduce him to these places and these activities and, um, you know, start, start, start uh, this new adventure where my world um, revolves around this little guy and how amazing that's going to be. Wow. That's so cool, man. Thanks for sharing that story again. Yeah, and it's uh, it's better the second time around, honestly. It's not that the first time it wasn't. It was just I, I think I got uh, I think I got some of the the rich details there kind of uh, embedded a little deeper, and uh, I kind of fully felt the magnitude of your fear there. Well, thanks for letting me share the story. Absolutely. Cool. Um, well, if we could take a crack at, at putting together uh, – a five or 10 word sentence that would summarize what you just shared with us. Um, you want to take a stab at it? Oh, man, uh, drilling all that down to a single sentence, I think would be that as, as we progress through life and as we grow our families, I think we inevitably have to, understand that our priorities and our goals and our decision-making have to evolve along with it to not just focus on us as individuals, but as those other people that depend on us. And I think as outdoor adventurers, that um, the the level of magnitude of those decisions and importance grows more and more, especially with children. So um, not focusing just on yourself, focusing on others. And a, I apparently don't know how to count because this is way longer than five to ten words. <laughs> no, I think there's. I think it's because there's depth there. Yeah, sorry, I'm not more succinct on that. But but yes, I, I learned a lot from this experience just about looking beyond just myself, focusing on others, and um, yeah, totally. I, I definitely took an important lesson from this one. Totally, awesome. I really think that uh, you're going to resonate with a huge audience in what you just shared. That's yeah, cool. well, I appreciate you letting me share it, and hopefully, uh, like you said, hopefully it's something that your audience um, can take something from. This episode's brought to you in part by Bill and Paul's Sporthouse. 
Bill and Paul's has been at the center of West Michigan's outdoor scene since 1961. The summer months are finally upon us, folks, and whether you plan to take your medicine paddling our beautiful waterways, hiking our wonderful trails, or otherwise exploring new adventures from the great Mitten State and beyond, the experts at Bill and Paul's are your trusted resource to visit beforehand. They carry all the outdoor clothing brands, kayaking gear, and camping equipment to ensure you do it right this year. Find them online at BillandPauls.com or walk into their store, conveniently located at 1200 East Paris in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mention Adventure Deficit and receive 10% off of your total checkout by using promo code AD2018, either in person or online. Again, that's AD2018. Bill and Paul's Adventurous People Shop Here. Let's, uh, you got time for, for a couple quick uh, lighthearted questions? Cool. Mark, um, I know that you have a, a huge heart for conservation and for public lands. Uh, I also know that you're well-read, and I know that you, uh, you admire um, the writings of some of the outdoor, uh, the outdoor heroes that I would say uh, have shaped uh, how we view um, traditional sports, uh, hunting, fishing, and uh, and participating in the great outdoors in those capacities. Some of the uh, some of the, the premier names that kind of come to mind in that might not necessarily fit hand in hand, but three uh, that I think would make for an interesting question are Teddy Roosevelt, Robert Rourke, and Ernest Hemingway. You've got an opportunity to spend the afternoon with one of those figures. Who do you choose and why? Mm. All interesting characters, all great options, but no questions asked. I would pick Mr. Theodore Roosevelt. Um, he has his fingerprints on so many different aspects of what we now enjoy. It is it is unreal. Um, his accomplishments as a president were impressive enough, but what he did leading, leading up to it, which I don't know if many people realize – were just as impactful. And I'll just mention a few things that he has done that impact my life now and, and probably your life and many others. You know, of course, he was an outdoor enthusiast himself, loved hunting, loved hiking, climbing, camping, all that kind of stuff. Um, so early on in his life, before he was even, I think, early 30s or late 20s, he was already doing some really impactful stuff. He had spent these very formative years in North Dakota, ranching and hunting and exploring and coming back from one of those trips back to his home in New York, he had realized, and this was in the late 1880s, he realized how how much of an impact we had had on the wildlife in this area of the country and how we were just kind of decimating wildlife populations and, and kind of, you know, pillaging the landscape as, as, the, as the American population moved westward, developing as we went. And so coming back from one of these trips to North Dakota, he decided we need to start some kind of organization that is going to stand up for these wild animals. He said at one point that we must stand up for the wildlife and wild places because they can't. So we must. And that's what he did. He founded, he co-founded the Boone and Crockett Club in 1888 or something like that. And it was the first real conservation wildlife advocacy group ever that could lobby for legislation protecting animals and landscapes. And so he did this. 
He co-founded it with George Bird Grinnell, who was uh, the the editor of Forest and Stream, which has now morphed into Field and Stream. Field and Stream, okay. And um, they had this tremendous impact with the Boone and Crockett Club at that point. They were the ones who really advocated for the protection of Yellowstone. So Yellowstone had been created as a national park. 20 years or so beforehand, but it wasn't really enforced at all. Nobody was protecting the game there. There was tons of poaching. Railroads are trying to get tracks ran through it. So the Boone and Crockett Club was really that main advocacy group that fought for laws that would actually lead to game wardens and park rangers and people actually enforcing laws within Yellowstone, protecting endangered species like buffalo. So he had a huge impact there. He became the spokesman for wildlife with the Boone and Crockett Club. His work then with Boone and Crockett Club led to us passing a law a little later that led to the creation of national forests. At the time, they were called forest reserves, but um, he was one of the main people lobbying for the protection of forests uh, to act as wildlife reserves, to keep from these timber companies just logging everything and decimating these places. So the creation of national forests really has Teddy Roosevelt to thank for that as well. Then... Fast forward now to 1901, he becomes president, and then he just took all those things he was working on in his early life, and he just ramped up the scale and um, energy put into it by 10,000%. Now he had the bully pulpit and the pen that could basically make things happen. So, Hmm. of course, most of us know the things he did as president. He set aside almost, I think, maybe even more than 200 million acres of new public lands, created so many new national forests, many new national parks. He created the first wildlife refuges. Um, So this is a brand new type of public land specifically created to protect specific species of wildlife. And he really made conservation something that was part of the national dialogue for the first time. You know, 10, 15, 20 years before that, nobody was thinking about protecting wildlife or wild places. We kind of looked at the natural world here in America as infinite supply of resources that we could take and use whenever we wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, But But Teddy Roosevelt really became the most effective speaker for a new way of looking at things. And he used his power as president to to enact that stuff into law that now we today are still benefiting from. Not only just those national forests, not those national parks, the wildlife refuges, the idea of, you know, you know, when it comes to hunting, having sustainable management practices, um, he passed a law called the Antiquities Act, which created the ability for presidents to make national monuments. So he used that tool to protect the Grand Canyon, which is a threat from being developed in all sorts of different ways. He put a stamp on that and said, no, we are not going to screw this place up. We need to protect this thing forever. Mm. So the Grand Canyon today having that landscape, having that place, that is because of Mr. Teddy Roosevelt. There's so many different examples like that I could point to. Um, So, yeah, I would love to hang out with him because he had this unreal, unbelievable impact, and he was just an incredible character. From everything I've read about him, he was just as charismatic and interesting um, and curious about the world as anyone has ever been, not to mention uh, a dang good outdoorsman and hunter. So uh, I think we could have some some good times. (laughs) Well, dude, I knew you were well well versed in in Roosevelt, but I didn't. Uh, I mean, I didn't know you were that well versed. And there's a lot of passion behind that, and I love it when I tap into somebody's somebody's uh, you know soft spot for for a certain individual who's helped you know shape the world. And it sounds like you've got a good grip on what Teddy's done for us. Yeah, he he he's quite the character. <laughs> Not to mention he was kind of a bit of a badass. I mean, at one point he took, the original. He took a bullet in the chest, 
grabbed a napkin. I think he jammed jammed a hanky in there and delivered one of the most prominent speeches of his day to a crowd of you know crowd of uh, on onlookers in Chicago. I think it was while he was campaigning. <laughs> yeah, he uh, finished the thing the off right. Uh-huh. Basically yes, said, I'm not coughing up blood. I'm good. Get me out there. Yep. Cool. So if you enjoy any of our national parks, uh, it would behoove you to at least pay homage to the man who set that uh, set that land in motion to being protected. Uh, so pick up maybe some, some books on Teddy. Grab uh, your laptop, crack it open, and do some, uh, some searches on Teddy. But uh, a monumental figure in protecting... The public lands, which Americans often take for granted, but it is so ingrained in being American that uh, you ought to know a thing or two about it. So, cool. Um, transitioning from uh, from Teddy into kind of more or less uh, the the AD wheelhouse, Adventure Deficit is a project that. Uh, that I had started uh, about a year ago, that um, it, it's an attempt to take all of the disciplines that I so love, right? Backpacking, hiking, camping, paddling, hunting, fishing, climbing, whatever. I mean, all of these variety of, of ways in which we can go play on these public lands and basically lump them into one common category and find common, you know, thread through all of them. Um, traditionally, there's been a disconnect between kind of the more traditional hunting and fishing sports and then kind of what I would dub the outside magazine crew, which is, you know, your, your alpine skiers, snowshoers, your climbers, uh, your mountaineers, etc., I think we're in a we're we're entering into a day and age where those groups can't exist well um, separately. You had talked about Boone and Crockett serving as as more or less a representative piece for hunters and anglers to get a voice uh, on Capitol Hill. More and more, we're seeing you know our our public lands under scrutiny and our public lands under. Um, you know, under under pressure um, from folks who really want to develop, and from uh, from you know the the legislative side, things are pretty hot right now, and it seems like there's only one way that we're going to to bring a common voice that matters, and that's to band together. Um, part of what I've been witnessing with BHA, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is um, their their willingness to accept kind of that more traditional quote-unquote outside magazine demographic into the more traditional sporting uh, demographic and, and kind of join hands. Um, talk on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I, I see it as, as probably one of the, if not the most important shift that we all need to make if we want to keep wild places and public lands and wildlife and uh, the opportunity to enjoy these places, if we want all those things, just like you said, we have to stand together. We have to look past whatever differences we might have and work together towards those common goals and common passions. Because I think when you take a, a climber 
in the Sierra Nevadas and you take a hunter in Montana and you take a kayaker in North Carolina and you take a peak bagger in New Hampshire, we have a lot more in common and we love a lot of the same things, much more so than the the small things we disagree on. Mm. So this is, this is one of my greatest goals over the coming years is to work to bridge that gap, to bring these communities together, to help us, you know, work towards these things that, that, as you said, we need to be working towards if we're going to keep these places when it comes to these public lands issues, when it comes to a lot of the different laws and regulations and things going on right now that are being repealed, trying to chip away at these wild places that we have left. You know, we don't have a whole lot left. There's so much development. There's so much urban sprawl. There's so much extractive use. Um, and the momentum continues to grow and grow and grow as, as economic growth continues and population growth continues. And those are all well and fine. But if we don't find a way to balance that with the natural world and trying to care for the environment and these wild places and wild animals that we have, um, we're going to lose this unbelievable resource and, and opportunity that, that we so uniquely have here in North America. So, yeah, so I subscribed to Outside Magazine and I subscribe to Field and Stream. I shop at Cabela's and I shop at REI. Uh, I consider myself a hunter, and I consider myself a hiker. I consider myself a conservationist, and I consider myself an environmentalist. Um, so I feel like I live in both of these worlds very much, and so I'm particularly passionate about trying to find ways to bring these two communities together. Um, I think it starts by all of us having a little bit more of an open mind and being willing to hear people out on their different ideas and being okay with the fact that we won't agree on everything. Hmm. Um, I think if we can just start having the open, reasonable, rational dialogue, I think that's the first place. It's really easy for people sometimes who might view themselves as being on different sides of the political spectrum or living in an urban area versus a rural area. It's really easy to put up walls and say they're not like me um, and become defensive about your position or get emotional about your position um, I think this is leading to all sorts of challenges that we're seeing in the country today, not just related to the natural world. Um, but in this case, I think that um, just getting people to talk and hear people's stories and hear where people are coming from and hearing these different perspectives, I think that's step number one. Hmm. And so I hope that that's something that it sounds like you're you're working towards here with the venture deficit. It's something that I'm trying to do with Wired Hunt and my different projects moving forward. And um, I think if we continue to have people that can have these communicate these conversations in a, in a positive way, I think that can really move the needle. And once we start getting these communities working together, I think our our um, the impact we can have is going to be really significant. Um, you you've seen just in you know the last year or two. There's been a few instances where we have been able to rally the troops around an issue. Like uh, last winter, there was this bill proposed uh, to sell off something like 3 million acres of, of national forest. And both the hunting community especially, but then also the, the outdoor recreation community jumped on this too. There was this upswell of... Um, of a reaction to this. And messages and emails and phone calls and tweets and Instagram posts and this outcry saying, this is not okay. We are not going to accept this. And when we got all these communities together, everyone got on board with this. Everyone made a ruckus about it. That was enough to get this representative's attention. And within a week, I think he retracted that bill and said, Hey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I support these public lands. Hmm. So I think that was just a great example of the, of the power we can have, the influence we can have when we do all come together on these things. And I think those types of situations are going to keep happening and if we want to be on the on the right side, if we want to be on the winning side of those issues, 
we're going to have to we keep working together in that way. A delicate, a delicate uh, act for sure. I mean, there's when it comes down to it, if you get uh, if you get two people who are on pol- polar opposite sides of the spectrum, right? You've got somebody who's that to use your examples, you know, the Sierra wall climber who might, for example, let's just hypothetically paint a picture here. You got a Sierra wall climber who frequents Yosemite is a big John Muir, you know, believer and um, chooses to be vegan. Put them in the same room across the table from somebody who grew up, say, in the north woods of Maine, part of kind of the quote unquote traditional red plaid gang, much more um, deeply steeped in tradition, uh, hunts almost for sustenance, huge into the Teddy Roosevelt movement, huge into conservation, and um, cares deeply for the public, you know, the public lands that we all have as a birthright. Put those two people uh, on the same table and find common ground it's tough unless both of them are willing to say hey we, we are going to identify this early on there's going to be some differences here where do we find common ground let's start there right and i think that just comes down to a society being willing to to do conflict better yeah like you said it's not easy but you mentioned john muir and, and teddy roosevelt those two while both tremendously impactful on our you know, the protection of our wild places, public lands. They were coming to it from very different perspectives. But you've got John Muir, who was all about preservation. He was very much a preservationist, keeping things completely as they were, untouched, natural, pristine. You had a Teddy Roosevelt, who was, in general, he was protecting a lot, but he also looked at things with a conservation mindset, a, 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 a use, a careful use, a mindful use. So he was... A lot of things he talked about was setting up national forests, protecting these forests, but still using them in some ways, having sustainable timber production, different ways that you can kind of get the best of both worlds. So sometimes him and John Muir butted heads on stuff because of that. But in Yosemite, interestingly enough, as we're talking about the Sierra Wall Climber, those two came together. They camped out for four days together in Yosemite, talked through all these different things that they loved, talked through all these different things that they disagreed on. You know, Teddy Rosa, obviously a huge hunter. John Muir, not particularly keen on hunting at all. Mm-hmm. But they were able to spend those four days together, and they came out of that with these evolved perspectives, with this ability to work together, speak together on issues that they could both have a positive impact on and work better together, have a bigger, a bigger, more impactful influence together versus letting those few things that separated them force them to different sides and not you know not do these things in tandem so i think they are a perfect example of the fact that we can work together we can point to them and say hey if they did it we can do it too and i think we absolutely can totally there's a photo of those two actually hanging up in the granville cabela's uh right by the fire hearth there and they're shaking hands in front of a giant redwood yeah yep that comes to mind when you start talking about that that's cool um okay one piece that i wanted to at least identify um that i was exposed to from the the bha rondi in idaho was something that uh i think kind of my my listeners who who are more kind of in that sierra wall climbing camp will find interesting and it's uh that von scheinard was one of the storytellers 
that had been shoulder tapped to uh, to give you know an adventure story at uh, this BHA event. And one of his quotes that I found most interesting was um, I actually wrote it down before we jumped on Mark. Um, quote from Von Chenard, founder of Patagonia. They say hunters and tree huggers can't come together. That's bullshit. The only way we're going to get anything done is work together. And I couldn't agree more. I couldn't say it any better. I 100% agree. I thought it was awesome that he was there. I thought it made a great statement. The, you know, Yvonne and Patagonia leading by example there. And they've, they've done a lot of great things in the fight for public lands and the environment. And, you know, they don't always see eye to eye that, that organization and members or employees or people that love to wear their stuff. They don't always see eye to eye on things with the hunting community or maybe some members of backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, but they're willing to say, Hey, we're going to be, we're going to be a part of this. We want to work together on these things. And I think uh, his presence there was a great, um, it was, it was great for the optics. It was a great example for all, for all, for others of us to follow. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm, was going to ask if you were there to hear that in person, but it sounds like you had, uh, yeah, you'd been exposed to that one. So, yep. Yep. What did the crowd do? Was there some whistling and clapping? Oh, there was, there was a really, really positive, um, reception for Yvonne there. I know that I even got to talk to him and, and a couple of the other people that were there with him from Patagonia. And they kept mentioning how amazed they were by the positive, um, welcome they got. So many people were coming up to them, thanking him for being there, saying how much they appreciated the work that they're doing. And they were surprised, you know, they, they weren't sure what the reception would be, you know, if the hunting community would, you know, be happy to see them there, if they'd be confused by why they were there. Um, but in many cases, the guys and girls that were there, hunters and anglers were also people that were wearing Patagonia gear that supported a lot of the things that Patagonia does. Um, so there's a lot of synergy there. Totally. And, um, Yvonne, actually, when he was up telling his story, he even said that this event, this rendezvous, these people here supporting public lands, this was the most incredible conservation group of people and event he'd ever seen. He thought it was absolutely amazing. And um, of all the different things he'd been a part of, this was this was possibly the most impressive. So I thought that was that was really cool to hear because he's been around the block. He's seen a lot. He's been involved on a lot of these issues from very early on. Hmm. And uh, for him to be that impressed and excited by what was going on there. Um, I think point to the fact that there's a lot of momentum right now with backcountry hunters and anglers and with people within this community stepping up to protect these places, protect our public lands, wildlife, and to do it in a, in a meaningful, careful way. Um, that was exciting to see in here. Totally. So the big, the big looming question mark for me is how long until we see Patagonia dive into the uh the earth tones shy away from well not shy away from but traditionally they're they're dealing with pastels all the loud colors that you see on you know buddhist flags hanging in the himalaya how long how long is it going to be before we start seeing some digi camo patterns coming out from on on a micro puff (laughs) I'm, i'm guessing i'm guessing a long time still um i think they actually have dabbled a little bit with like some upland stuff or maybe they've been thinking about maybe doing some upland stuff yeah um and they definitely have a strong foothold in the fishing especially the fly fishing world they've been making gear for for that community um i don't know if they'll ever make the jump into hunting gear that might be that might be a little bit 
more than they're willing to do right now, but yeah, that's no, all right. They've no. got a great foothold and they're doing great stuff in their part of the community. And I think there's there's some organizations that are making great gear um, in the Patagonia vein, but for the hunting community already. And um, you know, I think it's great. Everyone's making great gear that helps us get in the out get in the outside, enjoy it, and um, you know, make the most of it. And if you're out there enjoying these places you love these places and if you love these places you're willing to stand up and protect them so uh that's important totally all right shifting gears to some fun fun quick ones uh you uh when you're when you're out there on the plains um and you're rifle hunting i have been uh under an ongoing dialogue slash conflict with uh with a peer a close peer as to what the proper way is to squeeze off um, a shot when dealing with a scoped rifle. When looking through an optic, are you a one-eye open or both eyes open guy? I'm a one-eye guy, um, but I don't think anyone should take my advice because <laughs> I, I rifle hunt about five days a year versus bow hunting, you know, another 90 or something like that. So my firearms hunting is, is, is definitely on the, the short end of the stick as far as how much time I spend doing it. So, that's what I do, but uh, there's probably better people to get advice from on that front. Okay. Well, you're going to have to turn me on to those people at some point, Mark. <laughs> Steve's, Steve's a good one to talk to. Perfect. Um, how does your wife um, How does your wife adjust to, to kind of some of your recent um, success with, you know, coming on board with Meat Eater and some of the, you know, success that you've been experiencing with, with Wired to Hunt? How does she uh, handle handle all of that? And uh, maybe I thought I, I could ask a little bit from her perspective if uh, if you care to dive in on that a little bit. Um, that might yeah. help some of our kind of some of our female listeners hear how s- some other gals are doing it. Yeah, I, I cannot say enough about how supportive my wife has been, and what a great partner she's been in through all this and you know as i as we talked about way at the beginning as i was kind of growing as an outdoorsman and started taking these big wild adventures spending more and more time out west that was all happening with her she's kind of been my partner in crime for so much of this um backpacking and kayaking and hiking and peak bagging and all that has been with her so she's my my favorite adventure partner and uh i'm so fortunate that she enjoys doing these things with me and has led to us having some great great experiences together um not only that but also you know she's been so supportive of my career moves and my aspirations there um you know when i was thinking about quitting my job at google to try to run wired hunt full time i mean that was a huge risk that was a scary thing that was that was right after we got married like literally we got married and then i left well i got married left for our honeymoon and then I quit my job the day after our honeymoon. So, I mean, that was a lot to, uh, to, to dive into. And she was very willing, and she was part of that decision process, and she was start, part of the planning process of how we were going to be able to do this, how we were going to manage this much smaller paycheck and much higher risk and much less stability. But she was right there along my side through all of it. And, uh, and yeah, you know, there are times that are challenging for her and us because my job does require that I travel a lot. And so she has sacrificed a lot to um, to manage the household when I'm gone and to to bear the burdens um, of all sorts of different things that I sometimes can't do because of what I'm doing with work perspective. Um, and that is going to you know continue to happen now, especially with a new gig. Um, there's going to be probably more travel opportunities with what we're doing with Meat Eater. Um, 
and again my wife's been so supportive of that and willing to you know work work our way through it and figure it out we definitely have our you know our struggles sometimes with that and i'm constantly trying to get better at balancing my work and family life especially now with our with our baby I need to get better and better at that. So that's something I'm constantly working on. It's, it's a big part of kind of my own personal development. You know, as I mentioned in my story, you know, I definitely have had times in my life where I've gotten too focused on me and my goals. And so something that I'm constantly trying to stay self-aware about is thinking about other people, those that I love, like my wife and my son. And um, so she's been an incredible supporter and um, she's helped me work through all that stuff. And I know she's she's been really excited about this new opportunity and supportive of it, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be an exciting new adventure for us moving forward, and uh, can't wait to see what happens. Kylie, the Rock, the one who holds yes. it all together. She is, that's <laughs> for sure. Well, I had like I said, had the pleasure of meeting her. She seems like a really sweet gal. Um, I'm just really stoked for you, man. You got a cool cool story that's unfolding. Um, it was a real pleasure to, uh, to spend some time with you. Um, and I truly wish you all the best, um, in years to come. I know there's, uh, there's more adventures awaiting. So, um, I think we're, we're up, man. It's, it's about an hour and a half and I want to let you get to the things that you need to get to today. But, uh, yeah, on behalf of the adventure deficit community, Mark Kenyon, thank you so much for your time. Guys, if you have any questions, um, I'm going to post show notes, www.adventuredeficit.com. Mark's got uh, www.wiredtohunt.com or now meateater.com, M-E-A-T-E-A-T-E-R.com. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Drew.